The 2016 election of Donald Trump saw a monumental shift in culture. Everyone, no matter who you were, had an opinion on the matter, and Americans were divided like never before. Over six years later, and the aftershock is still being felt, and various organizations and groups that arose as a reaction to that event remain with us today. This includes a growing movement of individuals who call themselves ex-evangelicals. Due to right-wing politics, sex scandals, hypocrisy, treatment of the LGBTQ+, or any of a dozen other issues, young people began to leave the church in droves, and were proud of it. If the church is ever going to fix the issue, it better first understand it. And understanding begins with dialogue. Today, we ask a prominent, self-identified ex-evangelical to share his story and the reasons he finds for the movement's continued growth. Obviously, this episode is going to be controversial, but that's why we exist. We're here to open conversations, not close them down. You probably won't agree with everything said, or you just might. Either way, it's a conversation you're definitely going to want to hear at the end of. Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. On today's episode, we have Megachurch Sins, Did Donald Trump Kill the Church, and Who Are the Real Heretics? I'm Jonathan Lionheart. Here joining me is Seth Hart. Good job. Your first time ever doing the intro. That wasn't that too terribly bad. And this is totally our first take. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate the support, Dad. (laughs) You're welcome. Well, I'm glad you could do it because you are the sole creator of this episode, which will inevitably be our most controversial episode ever. Like nothing will ever. It's not that episode. controversial. I, if this is no, the other, the reincarnation episode, telepathy, the, no. ser- the serial killer episode. That was controversial. Come on. None. Zero are as politically hot buttoned so far as this one. And then we're hitting everything with this episode. And why, that's why, just, why is this so, why is this so controversial? What, what? Because if we just did an episode on like telepathy, that's one issue that not a lot of people care about about or if we did reincarnation we just we we entertained the idea and ultimately i came out against it this we're literally tackling everything that evangelicals as a culture disagree with because the the whole point is exvangelicals it's a rejection of evangelicalism we're literally negating the audience well yeah it, it is a big 
influential audience that are big. <laughs> it is. They're they're a loud audience in, in America. They're gonna get angry. <laughs> they're gonna get. They're, so. We're gonna get a lot of angry comments if you really if you really want to stick it to us. Share our posts and just tell us tell us how angry you are. Share it and leave us that like button because we yeah. hate Jonathan hates like buttons. Yeah, it, please comment angrily on this this episode because that won't help our podcast at all. One like equals one tear on Jonathan's face. <laughs> John, on that note, who is our guest today? Our guest today is John Matthew. He is the pastor and founder of Harbor Online Community Church, which is a community of ex-evangelicals. I ran into John at AIR this year. And we didn't agree on everything. We disagreed on a lot, but he was a very articulate representative of the ex-evangelical community. And I thought we should have him on here to stir the pot and see what ex-evangelicalism is all about, what their community believes, and what it is about evangelicalism that has driven them away. I think we should be engaging with those outside of our, our worldview. Yeah, anyone who listens to our podcast knows that we always have people on here that we might not necessarily agree with. And that's obviously the case today. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't sit down and listen and see what we can learn about that. That's why Spiritually Incorrect exists. Well, and I disagree with Seth about pretty much everything. And yet I'm still here dignifying him with my existence and my presence. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Seth. Really great to meet you. And nice to see you again, Jonathan. You as well. So let me go ahead and start off. You're a pioneer of an online community of self-identified ex-evangelicals. So John, can you give us a bit of a sense of what that term even means? Because I'm sure some of our audience has no idea what that is. Yeah, uh, I did not help popularize the term at all. But basically, it refers to, I think, anyone who used to be part of a conservative evangelical church context, a fundamentalist context, and who no longer participates in that tradition, who no longer identifies in that way. So a lot of times the journey out of a tradition is really difficult. Sometimes it's not, but often you're talking about the loss of beliefs, the loss of important relationships. So it can be a really difficult time in life. And a lot of spiritual trauma is something that people are talking about a lot now. So we formed a community to create space for those who are dealing with those wounds, the, the past hurt from their church experiences. Some folks who are ex-evangelical are done with faith. They're done with church. They don't want anything to do with it. That's their own journey. But some of the folks leaving these traditions still care about their faith in Jesus. They still want to believe. They want to have spiritual practices. They don't know how to do that, though, outside of the tradition they've always known that they used to be a part of. So. Ex-evangelical more broadly can mean pretty much anyone who has left these kind of traditions in any direction, whereas at Harbor, we are mostly folks who still identify with faith and Christianity in some way, but who have left that particular expression of Christian faith. Evangelical is kind of one of those broad terms that can mean everything and nothing at the same time. So before we kind of say too much about ex-evangelicals, Let's talk a bit about what they are X. What do you think evangelicalism is? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of people have tried to answer it, and there are some different ways you can answer it. I view evangelicalism as a particular strand of Christianity, primarily in the West, and it is largely non-denominational in nature in the U.S., though there are certainly 
uh, denominational churches and traditions that would fall under the umbrella of evangelical Christianity. I personally view its roots, modern evangelicalism, its roots back in Whitfield and the, the awakenings in the, in the, on the continent uh, of the U.S. And of course, then there's like a modern phase that Billy Graham helped to kick off sort of reclaiming the word evangelical. Yeah, I would say anyone in any Christian tradition that theologically fits within certain parameters, I would describe their faith as more evangelical in nature. Those parameters, there are plenty of ways you could try to spell them out. A guy named David Bebbington is a historian. He came up with something that is now called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. He describes what he sees as the four pillars of evangelical Christianity. In my own words, these four pillars, if I remember them, are the Bible, particular views about the Bible, atonement and the cross, particular views of that, conversion, a heavy emphasis on individual personal decisions for salvation, and activism is what he calls it, but like primarily evangelism and missions. So I would say any expression of the Christian faith that fits in the, within those four parameters is theologically what I would call evangelical Christianity. That's my best stab with, with compliments to David Bevington. Oh, and I'll, and I'll add this. A historian who's working now, Peter Choi, has suggested we might need to add a fifth or a sixth pillar to really capture the picture. And he suggests words like imperialism or chauvinism. And I think Peter doesn't mean this really polemically. I think he means it historically, that if you look at the history of the movement that Whitfield started, it is marked by a posture of chauvinism which my understanding of that is the, the idea that, you know, as soon as Whitfield is, is emphasizing personal conversion, you're splitting everyone immediately into the, the goat and the sheep, right? You have the people who have had the second birth, the people who have had the conversion experience, and then you have those who haven't, even though they're churchgoers, even though they would say they believe in Jesus. And so you immediately have this one up, one down relationship being formed. And I think that thread goes all the way through all the expressions of evangelicalism. And the idea is that we have this belief system, we have this worldview, it's a popular word, I think, among evangelicals. And the assumption is that anytime anyone disagrees with any part of this worldview, it's taken for granted that I am correct and the other person is incorrect. And furthermore, it's incumbent on me to then share the goodness I have with them. They need what I've got. So I then have to persuade or enlighten the other person who's lacking the, the key thing that I have, which is a correct worldview. That I think that's always been part of evangelical faith. It's part of the problematic nature, in my opinion, of that tradition. And so that is why I think Peter Choi is saying those are the kind of words we also need to use if we're going to describe evangelical Christianity. I think that's really interesting because I have my own issues with contemporary evangelicalism, but I've tended to be quite a big fan of the tradition and history of evangelicalism. But you're, you're kind of making a, a bigger claim than just, you know, American evangelicalism has gone off the rails. You're saying historic evangelicalism is tainted in its foundational roots. And so the, it's not like we need to redeem this tradition. You think we just need to push it aside and kind of start again. Is that where you would go with that? Yeah, I mean, I think any faith tradition that anyone wants to participate in, they should critique and they should be humble and they should say, We've probably gotten a lot of things wrong. Let's figure out together what, what's gone wrong and let's try to fix it. So I, I think that that is true of evangelicalism and it's true of every other religion and every other branch of Christianity. So, you, But I do think the problems with evangelicalism go way, way back. Like if you 
look at Whitfield. I'm not a Whitfield scholar, but I read a biography of him, right? And one of the points of Stout's biography of him, one of the famous ones, one of the points he makes is that Whitfield basically pioneered the commodification of religion in the U.S. What had been a very communal neighborhood-based endeavor before now became a product that was finally honed to reach particular markets. And then the marketplace of religion took off from the day of Whitfield on. So I, I do think a lot of the way we understand church, we owe, for better or for worse, to, to the awakenings. And I think that I would say some of those legacies of Whitfield's preaching are pretty problematic. Yeah. If I could return back to this point you made about imperialism, that definitely does seem to be a marker of evangelicalism. But it also struck me as that seems to be an aspect of most religious movements, that it is a sort of in-group, out-group. So I just want to ask you, is there something particular that Choi is saying about evangelicalism that maybe goes beyond or is slightly distinct from other religious movements? Yeah, it's a great question. I can't speak for, for Peter Choi, but I would say that, yes, every religious movement has boundaries that are helpful to distinguish who's part of the tradition and who is not, who is part of this particular community and who is not. But not every religious tradition says, oh yeah, and all those who are outside need to be inside. So we're going to go to them and convince them to be part of this group we are a part of. I think that's pretty distinctly evangelical. Now you could point to other things that we might not label as evangelical Christianity, Mormonism, Christian science. You might be able to point to different uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. There might be other traditions out there that also have a missionary impulse, but I think the kind of imperial world conquering motive that seems to be powering evangelicalism is somewhat unique to evangelical Christianity. I can imagine sort of an evangelical at home listening to this and thinking, well, is that specific to evangelical Christianity or is that just Christianity? And they would, you know, think of the Great Commission and evangelism and Paul's journeys to spread the gospel. Is there a way that you see that evangelicalism is doing something above and beyond what historic Christianity is doing in that regard? Well, if you talk about historic Christianity before Whitfield, you know, you are looking at colonialism. You are looking at the Portuguese church going hand in hand in lockstep with the conquerors who went to other cultures and enslaved people. So yes, I would say there have been problems with missionary work in the church that far precede Western U.S. evangelical Christianity. I would say this, uh, Jonathan, about mission work in the Christian tradition that isn't particularly evangelical. I take my cues on mission work largely from Leslie Newbegin, famous missiologist, and there's also some Asian missiologists who've done really good work. Shoki Ko is one of them. And they just have other models that are different from going in, convincing other people that they're going to hell and they're wrong, and they need to believe the same thing you believe in the same way you believe it. There are more mutual models of mission work where you go into a new context and you share the treasures of your Christian faith with that context. You allow them to interpret that faith in their own contextual way. Meanwhile, you open yourself up to receive the treasures from their culture, their faith tradition, and you both become converted in some way, right? The experience changes both of you, hopefully for the better. Hopefully you're drawn closer to God, you through their faith tradition and them through your faith tradition. So that to me is a much healthier version of mission work that I tend to see more 
in the mainline Protestant modern missionary movement rather than in the conservative evangelical mission movement. So I'm sure with this whole exvangelical thing, we can talk about it in the abstract, but for most of the people probably in your own congregation, this is more of a personal journey. And I'd really like to touch on that a bit if you're okay talking about it. What was your own journey from evangelical to exvangelical? Yeah, thank you, Seth. I was just a card-carrying evangelical. I mean, I was all in professional evangelical. I did about six years doing mission. I was a missionary legally. I did campus ministry, but the way that parachurch organizations work, I was legally, I was employed as a missionary, but my mission field was college campuses in the U.S. So I did that for about six years. And then I worked at a large church for about six years, multi-site evangelical church in the Pittsburgh, PA area. And I, I loved it. I mean, the first, my first six or seven years, I really enjoyed the ministry. I was totally sold out on the belief system and the practices. 100% tried and true believer. A lot of things happened slowly and then rapidly to make me realize I needed to leave the tradition. One was I started to form relationships with people who were just different from me. So for the first time in my life, I mean, I'm embarrassed that this happened for the first time when I was a full-fledged adult. But for the first time in my life, I had black friends who were actually talking to me about what it's like to be black in the U.S. And I was listening to them. And as things were happening on the national stage, Michael Brown, George Floyd, I was hearing firsthand from them how it affected their bodies and their minds and their spirits. That changed my entire view of race. I also became friends with feminists, right? Why did it take me? 26 years to become friends with feminists, I don't know. But they started to talk to me a lot about gender. And the women who are feminists were telling me, again, what it was like to be a woman in the US. Uh, the same goes for LGBTQ folks. And my, my sister came out during this time as well as a lesbian. And so as I'm just doing life alongside and with people who are very different from me, who are having a very different experience moving through the world in our society, I just realized my church, I no longer really viewed society the way that my church viewed it. And the fact that my church would not ordain women, the fact that my church would not really countenance any queer people doing anything other than just attending a worship service and service and giving tithe monies to the church. The fact that we had 99% white people in this massive church in a, in a city with plenty of racial diversity, um, though segregated by neighborhood like most US cities, still plenty of people of color in the greater Pittsburgh area. So our response to police killings of young brown and black people was unbelievable to me. We would just pray for everyone involved. We'd pray for the police officers and their families. Um, and I just was, I was appalled by a lot of it. So th that was the main thing. I, I was in a long ordination process that was just unique to that church as an independent church. I just only would have been ordained for that particular church. But the process was long and dragged out. And at the end of it, after years in this process, they, they finally, finally, mysteriously at the 11th hour, questions of sexuality came up and they basically said, can you sign off on the statement, homosexuality is a sin? And I said, no, I can't sign off on it. And, and furthermore, I have some questions for you about this because there's, there was so much inconsistency, so much ignorance in the church staff and policies such that there were about how to actually minister to queer people who were in the congregation. And so I asked them all these questions. What are we doing? What are we actually doing with the very real queer people who go to our church for whatever reason? They found a home at our church. And what are we doing with them? 
And they couldn't answer any of my questions. They were not hard questions either, really. I mean, they were pretty straightforward. I asked them, you know, we had a, at the time a married lesbian couple who had kids coming to church every week, putting their kids in the, in the kids' church, volunteering to the extent we let them volunteer. And I said, what is our hope for them? Five years from now, 10 years from now, say they're still a part of our church. What do we want to be true of their life, of their marriage? Do we want them to be divorced at that point? Though divorce is spoken against way more often in the New Testament than, say, homosexuality, is that what we want for them? Um, do we want a celibate marriage? What are we even, what are we, what's the end game here? And the church leaders had no answer. They had just had no answer. Like, well, we just have to pray about it. Okay. Well, um, that's not giving a lot of pastoral guidance to the large staff of pastors and other ministers who work at this church and who are actually trying to walk alongside and care for these folks. So anyway, that's, that's a little bit of what precipitated my exit from my, that church and that tradition. A lot of the stuff you were talking about there, I mean, that's happening a lot around the time that the political divide is really intensifying and Trump is coming on the scene. My sense is I didn't really hear much about ex-evangelical communities until around this sort of Trump era. How has the political sphere played into the rise of ex-evangelical communities? If you look at ex-evangelical communities, not Harbor Online community, but just more broadly, they exist on social media. And they are, again, people who have left the church entirely. And mixed into that are a few folks who still maybe are holding on to faith, progressive faith. The only thing tying together those kind of groups are we're not evangelical anymore. That's pretty much the common thread. Now, what tends to happen in those groups, because I've been a part of some of those groups as well, they tend to be very progressive politically. And I would say being opposed to Donald Trump, for instance, is one of the absolute unquestioned agreements that everyone in those spaces has. Like if you go, if you, if you stumble into one of those somehow with some pro-Trump message to share with the group, I pity you. You will experience the fury of hell. So, so you don't want to do that. Now at Harbor, it's a little different because we have more in common than just we're not evangelical anymore. We're a faith community. We read scripture together. We talk about it. We care a lot about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. So we have a lot more commonalities. I would still say there, you can't find a Trump supporter in our community, try as you might. But we're not talking about particular candidates in our gatherings for multiple reasons. But yeah, I would say Trumpism certainly intensified this evangelical movement. I don't think it's solely responsible for it. I think people were starting to question things and starting to break away from evangelical churches for a while. But I certainly think, you know what, 81% of white evangelicals or something voting for Trump in the 2016 election, something like that. I think that horrified a lot of folks who saw him as one of the most despicable public figures of their lifetimes. And, and it's hard to compute if this is the correct worldview, the, the correct faith that has a monopoly on spiritual truth with a capital T, why are they the ones overwhelmingly supporting this monster for public office? So I do think that, that the political scene in the U.S. has definitely played a role in sort of intensifying the evangelical movement. I don't want this question to come across too pointed, but it is something that's arising in my head, and I think it will for some of our listeners, which is, is it healthy? I, I know you said that you at Harbor are more united than just what you used to be, but is it healthy for a movement to be grounded fundamentally in what it opposes 
rather than what unites them, especially movement that's supposed to be grounded in inclusivity and accepting everyone. It just seems like these are two things that I'm wrestling with in the back of my head. And I'm sure some of our listeners might be as well. I more or less agree with you. I think if you go to these Facebook groups that are just ex-evangelical, that's the only uniting thread. Mostly those groups are angry. Now, I don't think anger is a boogeyman that we need to like run away from. It's good that people have those outlets to express their anger. I think it's healthy, frankly, but just for what it is. It's, it's an outlet to release your anger, to receive some validation that you're not the one who's wrong. To, when, when you were hurt by a church community that did something bad to you, they were the ones who were wrong, not you. You need to get outside your church community sometimes to hear that from other folks. So I think it serves its purpose, these pure ex-evangelical spaces online. It would be hard for me to actually build meaningful community in those spaces that are solely united around what we're not and what we used to be, but now we reject it. So that's why I'm glad Harbor is more than that. I mean, it does do a lot of that sort of faith deconstruction kind of work, but we're also trying to rebuild together. What, what do we believe? What practices do we want to do together? How do we belong to each other? So there's, I would agree with you that it can be a dangerous game to rally together just based on what you're against. Jumping off of that question then is a very similar objection The biggest criticism of the evangelical right is that it is so politically aligned with one side of the political aisle. Do you see exvangelicalism falling prey to that on just the other end? I think there's two ways I've heard people kind of respond to that objection, and they're quite different. One response is, yes, post-evangelical Christians, progressive Christians are also political. They just have significantly better politics than conservative Christians. I've also heard people call for, we need to be more apolitical. We need to like get out of the partisan politics, leveling that critique against evangelicals, but then trying to do something that isn't super partisan or political. But I'm more in the first camp, just to be honest with you. What resonates with me is the statement that I read somewhere, probably a lot of people have said it, that, that the Christian faith is political, but it's not partisan. So I think if communities of faith, whether they are more on the conservative side or the more liberal side, I think if they will be guided by that, they'll at least refrain from some of the most egregious entwinements of church and state. I think that like we will talk about political issues at Harbor and you better believe like it's going to be the progressive side of the issue that's going to get the airtime. But we're not talking about candidates. We're not talking about particular elections. We're talking about the issues and the theological, spiritual, and practical justice elements of those issues that might relate to our lives in some way. So I think it can be done. I think being political as a faith community is okay, but I think marrying yourself to a political party and making that your ideological lens is where I think problems probably come in. Evangelicalism seems to be on this kind of rough patch in America right now. Even if you're pro-evangelical, you've got to admit that this is a tumultuous time. But around the world, by many counts, evangelicalism seems to be kind of growing and expanding and thriving. Why do you think that is? That's a great question. I think I would just be completely just BSing you if I gave you any kind of answer. I don't, I don't, have, <laughs> I don't have a secret knowledge about like global church trends. But I will say that just to point out an obvious fact, which is that though we have some meaning for the word evangelical, we tried to trace out earlier with the Bevington quadrilateral and whatnot, 
the word can mean different things in different contexts and does. So if you go to Europe and someone identifies as evangelical, if you go to South America uh, in one, many, many different contexts in South America, obviously, but if you go to any one of them and someone says they're evangelical, that's going to mean something different. So I don't know exactly how united the thriving evangelical movements are in South Korea, for instance, that as they are, how related that is to U.S. evangelicalism. I do think there are commonalities, though, and I couldn't tell you exactly why things are happening the way they are on the world stage with Christianity right now. But I agree with you that it's a really rough patch for the word evangelical in the U.S. and not so rough a patch in other places. Switching it up a, a little bit, we've talked a little bit about the desire for inclusivity and just kind of perusing your website, that seems to be a really strong emphasis. My impression is that most evangelicals would say they are inclusive to an extent as well, but they would divide a line between saying they're permissive, right? You want to include the person, but not necessarily permit certain things. You love the sinner, but you hate the sin. Anyone is welcome, come as you are, but you need to leave change. So you hear these tropes all the time. And I'm sure you've heard those kind of cliche sentiments all the time. How might you respond to those type of sentiments? Well, if I was being cheeky and we were in an online message thread, I would just post a link to one of our blog posts on the Harvard website. It's called, uh, what is it called? Love the Believer, Hate the Belief, uh, which is a play on like love, love the sinner, hate the sin. I think that the idea that we can love the sinner and hate the sin, like actively, verbally hate the sin in a way that actually does exclude people, even if we don't say those, the word exclusion, I think that's not loving. And I think to call it love is sort of hilariously misguided. The church that I used to work for, for instance, so they would say all the things you just said, Seth, for sure. Would they include, though, queer pe- think about queer people and Black people. So queer people, they're allowed to come to the worship service. They're allowed to donate. They can do a couple, couple volunteer roles. All the other volunteer roles are off limits to them. Staff is off limit to them, certainly being a pastor. Marry, we would not, they would not marry them. And so if you're in a community and you are told you're not allowed to get married to the person you're partnered to that you love in that community, you're not allowed to take on any meaningful volunteer roles in that community, you're not being included. I mean, that's just, that's the literal, that is what exclusion looks like, not being allowed to fully participate in a community, in even Black people. So this, this is a church that completely colorblind in all of its policies, all of its statements, they would never say a racist thing to their, to their own knowledge at this church. But why were 94 of the 95 staff members white when I was hired? And the one Black staff member, someone had to fight tooth and nail to get this man hired, a wonderful, distinguished pastor in the community, so hard for him to get hired. And then when he was, all the complaints that came in about his preaching style not being the same preaching style that we like to hear at this church. So then his preaching opportunities were taken away. So it's like, again, is he included? Is he welcomed? I mean, they would say he is. They hired him. But it was very hard to get him hired, and he wasn't allowed to preach as much as the white people. So, so, I mean, it's just, I think a lot of times we think we're being inclusive but not permissive, or some, some such phrase. We're actually just being exclusive. And so, and you don't understand that, though, until you can hear with an open ears and an open heart, hear the people who are being excluded as they take the risk 
to speak to you out of their pain and tell you the ways that your community has hurt them. And I understand it's hard to hear those things. It's very easy to get defensive to say, well, this is why we do things the way we do them. Sorry, it's not going well for you. Maybe there's a church down the street that would meet your needs a little bit better. So thanks again to Whitfield for this religious marketplace. I'll end my rant there, but thank you. That's an excellent question. At Harbor then, how do you balance that with also wanting to promote certain progressive values? Would you let a Trump supporter be on staff or someone who holds to traditional marriage serve in an excessive way or teach in, in that capacity? How do you balance that from the other end of the political aisle? I mean, it's a great question. And it's certainly something we are continuing to discern as a community. And we're, we're continuing to live out as a community. I think for us, what has been helpful is that we try not to, to make exclusionary decisions or policies or statements based on anything other than behavior that dehumanizes other people. Now, but that, that captures under it some of the things you named. So for instance, someone who says only marriage can only exist between one man and one woman. We would consider verbalizing that to be something that dehumanizes the queer folks because they're not allowed, it's not letting them participate in something that makes them fully human if they choose it, which is marriage. So that is a belief technically, but really we're not trying to police the belief. We are trying to somewhat police the speech and behavior that takes place in our community simply as an act, I think, of protection. That's what we're trying to do, protect the vulnerable, protect those who have been marginalized, who have been hurt, and make sure that this is not going to be a place where that happens again. Now, if you are a Trump supporter and you come to Harbor, we will welcome you, we will love you, but it will not be a place where you will feel like these are my people. I mean, it's just, that's the reality of having a group that has some identity, that has some cohesive shared values, like, like you said. So. I can't make Harbor, we can't make Harbor something where every single human being comes onto our Zoom call and feels a wonderful sense of resonance and agreement and concord. We do our best to make space for all kinds of people with all kinds of faith beliefs, political beliefs. But again, what we're trying to really keep our eye on and really draw firm boundaries around is what is said out loud in our gathering times and making sure that there's no transphobia, no racism, you know, no, no misogyny being voiced in our group gatherings. So you must have known this question was coming. Our audience has probably been thinking it the whole time, which is, what do you do with the Bible? You know, you're expressing sentiments about, say, homosexuality and these types of things. A lot of the more conservative members of our audience are thinking, but Romans 1, but this text, but that text that talks about homosexuality. Could you maybe give us a sense of what the ex-evangelical community thinks of the Bible and how the Bible is used in your community? Like, what role does it play in the community and how might that contrast an evangelical community's approach? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Jonathan. I think that the answer may not feel cohesive to some of your listeners who are evangelical, but the answer is that it plays an incredibly central role in Harbor online community. I can't speak to just ex-evangelicals everywhere, many of whom aren't Christian anymore, don't care about the Bible at all. But the progressive Christians, the post-evangelical Christians that are in my community with me, nearly every time we gather, our gathering is centered around one or more scripture readings 
We look at theology that's been done about those passages. And then we have a group discussion. We go into facilitated discussion in breakout rooms about those passages and the theology. That's the main part of what we do in our weekly gathering together. So the Bible is super important to the shared life we actually have. Our time spent together, much of it is about scripture. That, the part that might not feel coherent is that most of us have just completely let go of any idea of biblical inerrancy. Uh, essentially, it's kind of the linchpin of a lot of the belief system that we have personally just found to be really harmful to us and to some of our loved ones. And we don't feel the need to believe in biblical inerrancy. I know there's some little napkin arguments for like, if God is wholly trustworthy and never errs, and the Bible is God's word, then how could the Bible ever err? I don't worry about those arguments. I just, <laughs> I just think the Bible is a gift. It allows us to understand God, love, life, purpose. It's a wonderful divine gift. But I do not believe in or care about biblical inerrancy. And I would say that like, that's just my personal view of the Bible. If you polled everyone at Harbor, I think there's a wide range. Folks who love the Bible, who read it regularly, who may still have some views that are in the neighborhood of inerrancy, infallibility, um, that kind of thing, to folks who don't engage with it much. Maybe when they come to Harbor once a week, that's their only engagement with the Bible. And they, and they, don't, they don't care a ton about it right now. They need to kind of detox a little bit from it. So I think there's a wide, wide range of views. But we, we treat it as a very important part of our faith community together. And we hold a, probably a, a range of views about it. Oh, I should also say, you mentioned that what are often called the clobber passages. These are the passages in the New Testament, especially that seem to be talking about homosexuality. And there's five or six of them, right? They've been called the clobber passages because they are often used to clobber queer people by telling them they are an abomination or they are gonna go to hell if they don't repent of their homosexuality or whatever. We have done studies on this together, but it's not the primary. We're not like going back over and over again to these passages and making the same arguments for why it's okay to be queer. There's a lot of really good work out there that's been done on this. Um, there's good documentaries. There's good books. There's good articles. There's a lot out there. We've looked at some of this as a community. And I think that, again, you might find a wide array of different ways people at Harbor view these particular verses. Some would say the Bible is a man-made document, a human-made document. And there are parts of it that just are bad. And these are the parts that are bad. And we now know that with 2,000 more years of wisdom than the people had who wrote the book. But there's other people who view this as an inspired work of God's doing of scripture who would probably say something different, who would say something like, this word was never meant to be translated homosexuality. It wasn't translated that way until the mid 20th century. It actually refers to the only instances of same-sex union known at that time, which were pedophilia and temple prostitution and things of that nature, which clearly are bad. So if you can use one word to kind of capture all that stuff and condemn it, that's a very convenient way to write this letter for Paul. So th there's different arguments people would adopt. But um, again, reflecting, I think, the wide array of views toward the Bible that we have in our community. So immediately, someone who's listening to this is going to ask, how then do you decide theological disagreements? Let's say someone at Harbor has a different perspective than another. I feel like at least if you have some canon, something to go to, you can then at least parse out disagreements in that way. How would you deal with these sorts of disagreements? Well, first of all, I would say this is a problem that may seem unique to Harbor online community or communities like it, but I do not think it is. So if, how does a typical conservative evangelical independent megachurch 
parse out disagreements on scriptural interpretation. Either they don't, or, well, the pastor stands up on the pulpit and tells you the correct interpretation among the different options, right? It's an authoritative kind of top-down. So it's a problem no matter what, because people will read this document in different ways, as evidenced by the hundreds of denominations that exist in the U.S. alone. At Harbor, I feel a freedom. I can disagree with someone else. So again, there's certain things we tend to agree on. Sexual ethics, at least the part of it about it not being a sin to be gay. That is why widely agreed upon at Harbor. But there might be other things we don't agree on. I don't know. Even in sexual ethics, polyamory, I don't know what the different views are at Harbor. We haven't done a deep dive in that. Baptism, thing, things that just you commonly have disagreements about. I think we would just continue to disagree. I think the, part of the vibe of Harbor is that difference is something that's good that we can learn from as long as it's not actively harming or dehumanizing any of the people. So I think one thing about baptism, and you think another thing about baptism, and we disagree on it in the context of Harbor Online Community, I hope that our posture is, I'm going to learn from your perspective on this, and you are going to learn from my perspective on this. How, how wonderful, how mutually enriching. Now, when it comes time to make a decision, how are we going to baptize people at Harbor Online Community, if we even can, because we're a fully, fully virtual online church? That's a whole other question. Then we have to make a decision as a community. So, so we have to eventually come down somewhere on, on certain things. But I think we embrace disagreement is the short answer to the long rambly answer that I just gave you. Protestantism in the Reformation was kind of intended to, you know, let's stop disagreeing and just get back to scripture and let that arbitrate our decisions. But actually what that ended up looking like is the thousands of different denominations that couldn't agree on what scripture said. So I find that interesting. The concern that I can hear in a lot of our listeners' heads is, okay, you've made some good points, but once we do get away from that, how does the whole tower of cards not just topple? And my question, I guess, John, is do you still hold to things like the bodily resurrection and the literal crucifixion and death and salvation by grace and these types of things? Like, do, would you still think yourself to be pretty theologically orthodox about those historically primary issues? Or has the whole tower of cards toppled? <laughs> well, okay, so the great question. And I think for many folks, the whole, the whole house of cards does topple. But the fear, I don't think the fear should be, oh no, this might all topple. I think the fear should be realizing that it's a house of cards to begin with, right? That, that's the concerning part to me. So once I realized my worldview, my belief system was in my own understanding, I came to realize that it was, in my opinion, a house of cards, it did kind of start to all fall. Now, that's, that's where you, get, you hear language about faith deconstruction and also faith reconstruction. So not everyone reconstructs, but that's what we're doing at Harbor. Yeah, I would say I identify as a Christian. And what I mean by that is that I believe in God and I believe in Jesus as the Son of God. I do believe he actually literally raised from the dead. And I believe that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where, where we will all, and by all, I mean all, like I'm a universalist, we will all be restored into a new life with God in the new heaven and new earth. So I, I believe in the Trinity. I mean, I believe in like many, many Orthodox Christian beliefs. That being said, what I now mean when I say I believe those things is very different from what I meant when I was an evangelical. So I actually hold a lot of the same beliefs but I hold them very differently. 
So belief for me used to mean that I find within me, or I try to drum up within me, a certain strong, rational agreement with a truth proposition. So like if someone says, are we going to go to heaven when we die? I would say, do I confidently, strongly believe that I or other people will go to heaven when we die? If I find that, yes, I have a strength of conviction within me, then yes, I believe that. If I don't, then no, I don't. Now I'm like, I don't have a strength of conviction in any of this. I, when I look inside me, say like, is there a Trinitarian God? I cannot find like a rational, convinced, confident part of me to just step in and say, yes, but I want to believe. And so I choose to believe that all these things I believe are true. It's, it's a bit like Schrodinger or Schrodinger. I don't, I've never known how to say the, the guy's name, but his cat. Um, it's kind of like that, right? I, I actually don't know. I can't know if these the metaphysical hidden invisible things are true, but gosh, I want them to be. And I, I'm going to choose to believe them and choose to live my life as if they were true. That's now what I mean by belief. Yeah, I would say I, I am a Christian in, an, in some orthodox sense of the word. But I also don't speak for everyone at Harbor Online Community. So that's just my personal. Hopefully view. the cat is alive. Uh, and if it's dead, it hopefully resurrects. That's right. That cat will be <laughs> with us in the new heaven and new earth. We hope. Yeah. The dead and the alive cat will be there together. All possible cats. Uh, right. They'll all be alive again. The box will be there too. The, yeah, the whole thing. It's all there. At the end of all things, the dogs will lie down with the cats and the lions with the lambs and ex-evangelicals with evangelicals, dare I say? I, that's what I'm hoping for. One final question I want to throw your way. You probably, over the past few years with the popularity of ex-evangelicals, have generated a lot of misconceptions. I'm just curious, what are some of the most frustrating and wrong ones that you've come across? Wow. Well, again, ex-evangelicalism, broadly speaking, is so diffuse and so all over the place that anything said about ex-evangelicals is probably true of some of them. So I, I don't think anything's a total misconception when it comes to just ex-evangelicals. But yeah, having a faith community, though, that's post-evangelical in nature, we get all kinds of hate online. And most of it is that we're false prophets, we're heretics, we're going to hell, we're bringing other people to hell. We don't care about Jesus. Some of these are just convictions people have. I can't talk them out of it. I have another cheeky blog post that I often drop on people called, uh, we, don't, we don't mind when you call us heretics. Just to let people know, like, you're not bothering us. If anything, you are strengthening our resolve to keep doing what we're doing. Because if you're hopping on comment sections, telling people they're going to hell, what makes you think we want to be part of your religious club? Um, we, that's why we got out of it. But no, in terms of misconceptions, I still have friends and family, more so friends, but I still have a lot of contacts who participate in evangelical Christianity. And I think what, what's hurtful and what's sad is just when they express their sort of condescending concern for my well-being. And I, I get it. Like, I, I am critical. I'm very critical of evangelical Christianity in my blog posts, in my social media posts. So I'm sure I'm offending them regularly, but just the condescension that I'm worried, just worried about your, your soul and like, do, do you still love Jesus? And like, there's this sense that if you leave evangelical Christianity, you must just be going off the deep end. You're just full heathen mode. Like it's just, you, you don't have any meaningful faith anymore. Either you lost your salvation or you never had it based on people's <laughs> convictions on, on that sort of thing. But I just would want to tell people everyone's on their own journey 
and everyone has the agency to actually figure out what the right next step is for their own journey. So if you have a loved one who used to be evangelical and now they're not anymore, certainly talk to them, ask them questions, definitely engage in conversations about it. But I don't think there's any need to wring your hands or to try to guilt trip them back into the fold. Um, I think just let them be on their journey and just love them and ask them good questions. That would be my advice in terms of misconceptions about post-evangelicals. John Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Seth and Jonathan. It was great to be here. Congrats on picking uh, the most controversial guest we've ever had, John. I like to isolate the audience. It's a dramatic technique. By isolating our evangelical base, we're ensuring that for generations to come, we will have no income or revenue stream and that this podcast will fail. Congratulations. <laughs> no, but I, I do think it's important for groups to engage with other groups. I mean, if you're evangelical, you should be engaging with evangelicals, And I, I hope that that's what our audience gets from this as well. Like, I am at an evangelical institution and I want to engage with non-evangelicals. Like, we should be doing that to listen and be open to that. And, and to listen, not simply to refute, but actually to enter into and empathetically understand. Yeah, but now to refute. And now to refute, Seth, uh, Jonathan, okay, so I am the empathetic one who wants to listen and understand, and Seth is the one who's just like, nope, it's it's time to lay down the law. Well, here, go for it, Seth, refute, refute away. No, I mean, I've got some interesting things that I would like to bring up again for discussion. It's not the whole point of this isn't to refute, but to, to offer feedback, so to speak. Well, so so what did you think? I think he was very articulate in yeah. articulating what he and his group believes. He brought up the Bebbington quadrilateral and brought up Choi's additions to it. I Maybe you can help clarify for me, but the idea of chauvinism, I, I just don't know. I th feel like that's just a universal trait of any view that proclaims to be true. To be true is to say that its negation is not true. And hmm. so any view in that capacity is going to be, to an extent, chauvinistic. Well, evangelicalism is to an ex a, a certain extent, but how is that? E I'm not sure how well, that chauvinism specifically masculine chauvinism or because i think was chauvinism distinct from imperialism chauvinism is the idea of that we're better imperialism therefore you ought to come over we you need to become part of us because we are better so that's why i think he's linking those two at least that's how i understood him i think he agreed with you that any group is going to have a common underlying set of beliefs and practices that inevitably create an in and an out group. He, he admitted that. And yet he said that nonetheless, there are ways of engaging with those outside of your own group that are non-imperialistic, that are much more about going and offering what you have, but also appreciating that the other might have something to offer you. And there being some mutuality and mutual growth in that. I think missionaries would actually agree that often they find themselves having to radically question their own assumptions as they move to other places and are being challenged. And I would imagine the more able to do that, the better a missionary would actually be. And that the imperialist ultimately isn't so much a good missionary and is more just of a bully. But here's the thing. To an extent, he says, yeah, both should be converted and said that's the sort of antidote to imperialism and chauvinism. But then later in the podcast, he says, I think our politics are better than the standard evangelical stances. 
but that is that's that's what chauvinism is is it's the belief that we have the truth you do not you ought to come over to our position and so in what sense is that has he escaped that have ex-evangelicals escaped from the very critique that they have of evangelicals i suppose that a missionary of any sort and someone in his position has to ultimately think that they have the truth on at least one issue. I think you're right about that. And yet there is still a way, a a method, a posture that can differ between those who come in thinking they have all the answers and those who come in thinking that they humbly might have one or two answers, but have a lot to learn in every other area. And my impression is that the history of uh, Western missionaries has often been coming in and we're not just going to share Christ and the gospel. We're going to share Western values and Western clothes and Western gender norms. And we're going to give you capitalism and we're going to give you democracy. We have the ultimate society and Christ is a part of that, but we've got the package deal and you savages need to kind of get on board with us civilized folk. How is that different though than how a lot of ex-evangelicals, and he might actually agree with this, I wish he was still in the discussion, how ex-evangelicals treat right-wingers? Because there does seem to be a sense in which that's sort of a look down, morally reprobate people that needs to adopt this enlightened perspective that we have, which is less dehumanizing. Yeah, well, I think you're right. It would be really interesting to have him come back on to talk about that. I'd be interested to hear his response. I just really, I just, I'm done with this topic and I don't want to talk about it anymore. We've reached that point. You have nothing worth listening to. (laughs) I have to get you a little bit riled up, I feel like. To make it interesting? Yeah, I have to get you a little bit riled up. You, you, okay, fine. Well, bring it. You don't see me smiling over here. I'm like trying to rile you up over here. All right, let's go. Okay, I got something for us. He talked about how his former church had a predominantly white staff, was predominantly white, and had a different sort of style. That's a really good point, and I think for a lot of churches, that is an irreducible product of racism, past, present, whatever. But there is a sense that I get, which is that African-American churches have their own style, they're very unique, they're in very different communities. So what do you do in that case? Forming a church where one culture, usually the black culture, isn't just collapsed into the existing white culture, that's proven really, really hard. And let's be frank, some of the most racially homogenous churches are black churches or Asian churches. And the churches that I'm seeing try to integrate are white churches. And yet it's failing because there's just been such a cultural difference because they've been split for so long because of racism. Something's not working within the evangelical culture. And he's, he brought that up. I just don't know how to fix it, though, because churches have cultures at the end of the day. And I don't just want to have a more racially diverse church, but end up just forcing them to subsume to a Caucasian culture. And that seems to be the solution that churches are trying to opt for. And it just isn't working in my mind. The idea that an all-white church is just going to go out and get a few more diverse-looking individuals, and that fixes the problem doesn't really address the deeper issue of what is the heart condition and cultural condition such that we're only attracting a homogenous type of group? Why aren't we naturally attracting those who are different from ourselves? And, and I think that gets into more systemic questions. Because it's different, because we are occupying different cultures, and that is a product of America's horrible racist past. Yeah, of course, people are going to go to places they feel most comfortable with. The question is, is how do you overcome that? I don't know if we found a solution yet. 
I mean, I don't have a clear-cut answer, though the fact that I don't have an answer doesn't mean, therefore, we shouldn't feel bad about this. I feel like there needs to be that constant striving and continuing to go on the journey, whereas I, I sense that a lot of evangelicals will take what you've just said and use it as sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to not feel bad about their lack of diversity, which is something I just want to avoid doing, which is why I'm going to contradict you every time you speak, Seth. <laughs> well, I'm obviously not advocating for churches to be racially homogenous. I'm saying it's the problem to be overcome. But you worked in a nearly all-Asian church, and I interned for that same church. And, you know, we're the token white guys that they were trying to, I guess, trying to integrate better with the broader community, which is great. They did succeed. They had... Yeah. A white pastor. I was the only Caucasian pastor in a Chinese denomination. And the church, because of their openness to that, also hired two African pastors. Like, I, I don't mean African American, I mean actually African pastors as well. And we had a number of different ethnicities outside of Hong Kong Chinese people in the community because they were cultivating that. And that was only after a few years of really sort of intentionally doing that. And my sense is that that sort of diversity will happen if you are genuinely trying to change the culture. And my sense is that a lot of evangelical churches, not all, but a lot, are giving lip service to diversity, but aren't really wanting to ask the hard questions that would lead to genuine culture change. I don't know. Maybe we've had different experiences because I do tend to feel like I've sat in a lot of mainline Protestant denominational meetings and quite often racism is externalized. It's them who are racist, even though the, the people sitting in there are quite often as white as any evangelical church, whereas most evangelical services where it's been addressed, it's always nearly internal. Look, at we've been racist. This is what we need to confront. And we need to look like the kingdom of God as seen in Revelation. And so it does seem like both are addressing it, but only one is actually feels like it's actually taking credit for it. And that's honestly, that's kind of disturbed me. I, I once sat in a room where I was the darkest person in the room, and it was just because I'd been tanning. And a person got up on stage and talked about how racist evangelicals were. And I just sat there and I thought, uh, I, can you not read the room? Not even read it, just see it. So, I mean, I'm, if that's been your experience, then I don't want to deny that experience. Yeah, I mean, that's precisely, authentic. that's precisely what, that's ex precisely what evangelicals are asking for is to listen to experience. I guess my experience has just been different. My sense is every time I try to talk about racism with evangelicals, they immediately launch into all the counterexamples that show me that we don't need to talk about this anymore. Fair enough. That, that's been my experience is that they're willing to say, yeah, this is a problem, but there are reasons why it's not a problem. And da, 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 da. And that's the gut reaction that we have. Fair enough. But I think a lot of that comes from the fact that Christians feel like the answers to racism are always wrapped up in a worldview that aren't compatible with their Christian beliefs. There's a book by a scholar named John McCorder and it deals with the topic of racism and wokeness and all those sorts of things. And not a Christian at all, but his whole point is to compare wokeism, as he calls it, to a new religion that competes with other religions. It has all the markers and everything, and it competes with other religions. And that's not a Christian claiming that. And yet he sees it as a competitor. And so I don't think it's just Christians looking at this and the answers to racism we have today and saying, 
yeah, I see this as a bit of a threat because it's wrapped up in some other beliefs that I don't believe. It's wrapped up in a theory of power. It's usually tied to the plight of LGBTQ members. There's a lot of things that also go along with this ideology. And that's not to endorse the book or even the evangelical response. It's just to say that I don't think people are necessarily crazy whenever they have these fears. I mean, just think about how the term critical race theory is thrown around whenever it means pretty much anything and everything and it's very little to do with what it means to scholarship <laughs> yeah, they, they they describe something that's much broader than what the yeah, academic yeah. term means because they're associating it with this other whole world of things but even then if you ask them about that they might have some responses but then you ask them so what are you going to do about say the difference in wealth in the african-american communities and white communities they don't have an answer they they know what they don't want to do but I'm not sure there's been a good response to that. And if you really do believe that Christ is the hope of the world, then Christ should have an answer to that as well. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't know either. <laughs> um, I, I like throwing these. You don't just have all the answers, John. I thought you went to Cambridge. We, we try, to, try to stay humble among the common folk and peasants such as yourself. Uh, fair enough. Something I thought interesting was him bringing up trauma. And... Whether you agree with everything exvangelicals are saying, there does seem to be a lot of people coming out of evangelical communities right now with what they would describe as religious trauma. Uh, I remember when the kind of reaction to Joshua Harris and the I Kiss Dating Dubai type of stuff came out, and a lot of people were saying, you know, this kind of evangelical fundamentalist view of sexuality really kind of ruined sex and marriage and all of that world for me. And I, I entered in thinking it would be one thing. And I ended up with a very closed world. And then I got married and I just had no idea how to talk about sex or any of these things. And the abuse that can occur in those types of situations. I, I think there's a lot of trauma and a lot of stories that need to be heard. And ex-evangelicals are exhausted of trying to get us to hear them. And that's why they would leave. I mean, it, I, I get it. I understand. I, t I tend to see this as a growing reality for evangelicals, something that they're slowly learning to deal with in a not reactionary way. But it might be a little too little too late. Well, I almost wish we had him back here and we this discussion would get progressively better because progress is inherently good. And <sighs> 2,000 weeks from now, we'll look back at this moment and know that this was a stupid conversation and we didn't know what we were talking about, but then we will. Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star review. We're an up-and-coming podcast and every little bit helps. Also consider joining our Patreon page, Patreon sponsors have exclusive access to unaired episodes, different kinds of merchandise, the ability to suggest an episode, and even an hour-long interview with Jonathan and I. Check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com and see what you're missing out on. Sound effects from zatsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.